Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. For the final episode of this first season, our special guest is Thomas Piketty. He's a professor at the Paris School of Economics and the director of the World Inequality Lab. In 2013, he published the best-selling book Capital in the 21st Century, which studies the long-run evolution of wealth concentrations and distribution in Europe and in the US. I invited him to talk about his new book, Capital and Ideology, published in 2019. He provides a fascinating exploration of historical and contemporary justifications for inequality in various societies. The book is very rich, and we couldn't cover everything, so our conversation will focus on the second part of the book, covering slavery and colonial societies. So I'm pleased to welcome Thomas Piketty for the final episode of this season. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. So in your new book, uh, Capital and Ideology, you decide to explore historical and contemporary justifications for inequality. And you investigate this question looking at very different contexts, from ownership societies in Europe to colonial societies, communist societies, which is an original perspective in economics. Can you tell us more about your comparative approach and why is it relevant to compare regimes of inequality that vary so much in time and place? Well, first, you know, maybe I'm becoming more uh, of an historian than less of an economist, and that's possible. And, you know, but to me, this is not a problem. You know, I think the, the boundaries between different uh, social sciences are not as clear as what uh, some economists pretend they are, and sometimes also some historians pretend they are. So the reason I've been moving in this direction, you know, I've been interested in the history of inequality for a long time, but it is true that my previous work and in particular my previous book, Capital in the 21st Century, was very much centered on uh, the Western world, uh, Western Europe, North America, a little bit Japan. Whereas this new book, I think, you know, this new book first, I think is better, more interesting than the previous one, in part because it adopts a much more global perspective and and also so one one of the conclusion also one of the impact of having this more global perspective is also to stress this big role for politics and ideology because when when you take you know such a large perspective on the very large diversity of national trajectories and inequality regime looking at india looking at brazil looking at china south africa you know it's clear that you know, there's such a diversity of systems that you need to put politics and ideology at the, at the forefront. When we read the second part of your book, it seems that there is a continuity between the sacralization of property in the 19th century in Europe and what you call the colonial inequality peak. Why is it important to look at this continuity to explain the persistence of inequality in these regions today? Why is it so important to look at, at colonial societies, slave societies? Well, because, you know, today's structure of inequality, both at the international level and also within each country, is very much influenced by the, you know, the colonial legacy in general. And, you know, if you think of the current, uh, you know, mobilization uh, about Black Lives Matter and about people, you know, taking down uh, statutes of uh, slave owners uh, in Bristol or all over the place in Britain, in France, in the US, you know, some people are surprised about this, but I think, in fact, 
you know, we have neglected these issues for so long. And I, I try to stress, you know, in my book, if you, if you think of the, you know, the way we put an end to slavery, you know, in practice, we put in place enormous compensation, not for slaves, but actually for slave owners, which in itself is, I think, calls for reparation or at least for a discussion about reparation. You know, so, some people in, in France, for instance, were surprised that the statute of Victor Schulcher was put down in Martinique or Guadeloupe uh, because people in France, you know, viewed Victor Schulcher as, uh, you know, the white politician in France who was very generous and wanted to put an end to slavery. But in fact, Schulcher, like Tocqueville and other liberal intellectuals of the 19th century were very much in favor of full compensation to slave owners and nothing at all for slaves, which in many cases had to work in quasi-forced labor for, for many consecutive decades. Uh, Haiti had to pay a huge debt to uh, the French state from 1825 until 1950 in order to compensate the French slave owners for their loss of property. So I think this is important to have this perspective. First, because this issue of reparation cannot be neglected forever. You know, after all, we compensate for expropriation, which took place during World War II or World War I. You know, we had a, a repayment from Haiti until 1950. We had a legal segregation in the south of the U.S. until the 1960s. We had apartheid until the 1990s, and there are issues about land reform today in South Africa, which, you know, have never been conducted. So this is important in order to, to understand many big issues of the world today. And this is also important to understand how much the sacralization of private property, you know, the idea that property rights, once they have been established in the past, no matter their magnitude, no matter their origin, you cannot question them. And, you know, this was the philosophy behind the compensation to slave owners. If you don't compensate slave, slave owners, you know, where are you going to stop? You're going to question the entire distribution of property, so don't even dare thinking of something like that. But I think, in fact, we have to accept that you know democratic deliberation, democratic institution, progressive taxation have to decide, you know, where to stop in terms of uh, what kind of inequality of property is justified, is is desirable from a from a social uh, perspective. So for all these reasons, we, we need to take this uh, long-run historical perspective. La minute technique. And you talk specifically about the case of compensation in Haiti, which is really mind-blowing, where you you're able to compute that Haiti had to repay a debt to French uh, slave owners corresponding to about 2% of uh, French national income at the time and, and 40 billion euros today. I wanted to ask you, what are some of the key assumptions that we need to make when we make computations with historical data? So that's a very interesting example. So this was uh, 2% of national, uh, national income that was paid from Haiti to France. But from the point of view of Haiti, of course, it was much bigger. It was actually 300% of national income of Haiti of the time. So, you know, three years of output, which of course, was uh, was impossible to repay right away by definition so what happened is that the you know the french bankers came to haiti and say okay we're going to refinance your debt with an interest rate and so in the end haiti ended up repaying between 1825 and 1950 not only the principal you know roughly 300 of gdp but also some cumulated interest payment so then what what do you do in terms of methodology when you try to compare 
this kind of uh, amount of money over time, you know, this was in 1825 or between 1825 and 1950, and we are today in 2020. I think, you know, probably the most reasonable way to proceed is to think in terms of corresponding proportion of national income. So if you have, so 2% of national income of France of 1825, if we take 2% of national income in France today, that would be 40 billion. If we do the same for IT, you know, the 300% of national income of IT in 1825, 300% of national income of IT today will be about 30 billion uh, dollars. So you will get uh, roughly the same number. And, and I think that will set sort of a kind of order of magnitude of, in my view, what could be a possible uh, reparation from France to IT. Now, this is not a perfect you know, we, 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 we have to discuss about this, you know, we, we need a democratic deliberation because in, in a way, you know, some people will say, okay, we, all, we also need to take into account the interest payment. So maybe you need to capitalize the initial amount on the basis of the interest rate. Here, when I take a fixed fraction of national income, in effect, I am capitalizing on the growth rate of the economy, which is typically lower than the rate of return of capital in the, in the long run. I mean, this is getting a bit technical, but at the same time, you know, this is what we, we need to look at if we want to compare numbers over time. So, and if you don't do any indexation and you take the amount at the time of 1825, then of course the amount will look very small today because there's been a lot of growth and, and so I think, you know, indexing, zero indexation is not reasonable. Uh, interest rate indexation can get to very high level and you know, which interest rate, which rate of return. Growth rate indexation, which in effect means uh, uh, taking a fixed fraction of, of national income is, is probably, you know, the most meaningful way to proceed. But, you know, this is not something that can be decided by, you know, science alone, because in the end, we are talking about justice. We are, we are trying to define principles of justice that can, you know, be accepted by different people in the discussion, and we need to have a discussion. Over the season of this podcast, we have explored inequality from a wide range of perspectives, from global land inequality to gender inequality, the role of politicians. What do you think are the missing parts of the inequality puzzle and where do you see the most active research area going forward? That's difficult to say. You know, at, at the World Inequality Lab, you know, we've, we've been working a lot in recent years and months trying to extend our database, uh, you know, outside the West. So, you know, a lot of work has been done on, on, on uh, Africa. Uh, you know, Yashna uh, uh, Govin, who worked also on, on land inequality uh, in Africa, also did some work on uh, overseas French territories, you know, Réunion Island, Martinique, Guadeloupe, you know, the, which are in fact the former colonies and former slave islands of, of France. And looking at inequality in these regions is very interesting. There's, there's been a lot of work recently uh, looking at Latin America. And, and just to take an example, you know, until recently, when, when people look at inequality in the developing world, they use only uh, survey data. And, and typically, they underestimate 
not only the top part of the distribution, but also the overall level of inequality. And if we combine the different data sources, what we find, for instance, in Latin America is that not only inequality levels are even higher than what we thought they were, but also the trend sometimes is different from what we thought it was. So for instance, in the case of Brazil, we saw inequality had declined over the past 15 to 20 years. In fact, it's not so clear. I mean, the bottom 50% share increased probably a little bit, reflecting increases in the minimum wage of uh, Bolsa Familia under, under Lula. But at the same time, the top income shares also increased. So, you know, this was in the end, this was to the expense of the sort of middle 40% in between the bottom 50 and top 10. So, overall inequality, you know, did not really decline. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of promising research going in this direction. More work on wealth inequality rather than simply income inequality is needed. And we need to be able to decompose these inequality measures by gender, by origin, you know, ethnicity. And, and so that's, to me, that's, that's probably the, the, you know, the most important objective in the medium run. And you mentioned in the introduction of your book that you use literature in your own work because it can help us understand how representations of inequality change. Would you have a particular recommendation of a book or a movie or something that changed your way of thinking about economics or inequality? Yeah, I have so many. I don't know. I don't know where to start. But we were talking about Latin America. If you if you look at the latest novel by Carlos Fuentes, well, that was in 2008, but that was his latest novel before he, he died, called called uh, uh, La Volonta y la Fortuna, La Volonté y la Fortune. Uh, I don't know how it is in English, but it must not be very far from this. Uh, you know, this is really this is just as fantastic as Balzac about French capitalism uh, around 1820, except that this is in Mexico around 2000, 2010. And so the view that he gives you of, you know, very dark view about capitalism at, in Mexico, but at the same time, you have all these young people, you know, who are trying to find their way, you know, should they go for a revolution? Should, should they try themselves to, to become rich? Should they... And, you know, you have such a powerful way, you know, by novelists to express the consequences of money in the daily life and daily dreams and, you know, trajectories of people, which, you know, of course, I don't have uh, that kind of talent, you know, I am much more, you know, uh, you know, basic uh, type of writing uh, uh, with my little uh, data series and figures and but you know i think the, the, the writing of literature and the writing of social sciences are complementary and and movies of course is you know yet another form of uh, expression uh, uh, which uh, which uh, which you know can also open up horizon you know if you if you look at the uh, you know this incredible uh, korean movie uh, uh, parasites yeah, exactly. So, so that's so. Parasite is great, but the previous one by the same director, uh, the Snowpiercer, is also quite incredible because this is a science fiction uh, uh, movie which is really uh, which started from a cartoon written in the 1980s in France, the Snowpiercer, which is a story about basically you have some tech tech billionaire or you know some tech technophile crazy people who thought they would solve global warming by sending. Uh, uh, cold gas uh, in the in the air, except that the planet has become an ice planet, and the only remaining people on the planet are in a train that is that is going over the planet in order not to get cold. And of course, you have a class struggle in the train between the very poor people at the 
back of the train, very rich people in the upper uh, wagon. And this all ends up with a big uh, class war in order to stop the train and, 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 uh, and save mankind and solve global warming. So it's a very different setting than Parasite, you know, in today's, uh, uh, today's uh, Seoul, but, but what a talent. I mean, it's incredible. So again, you know, okay, we, we cannot do that, you know, as economists or social scientists. But you know, I think the kind of language and tools we develop uh, is, is, is complementary to these uh, other ways of talking about inequality. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Clementine. This was the first season of Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Van Effanter. I want to thank Lydia Aswad and Alex Mikowski who helped me produce this episode, and the Economics Department at the University of Toronto for their continuous support throughout this season. Music is still by the count. Thank you to all my guests and to the listeners around the world. Stay tuned for the next season.